This is Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. A lot of people won't get no supper tonight. A lot of people going to suffer tonight. Cause the battle. Siration. It's a magician. A lot of people won't get no justice tonight. So a lot of people going to have to stand up and fight now. Welcome to another installment of Stark Reality. How are you, party people? This interview was conducted last year, a.k.a. a few months ago, with our own Belinda Becker, New York's own. She's been here since the mid-'80s, and one of the pioneering uh, women DJs in the city played at a bunch of different places and still DJs out quite a bit. Also does some writing, acting, noted dancer, has a lot of great stories, and just a great perspective, which is the whole point of this. Uh, Opening up different perspectives, as she says later in the podcast, you know, telling, uh, telling her story. So let's get into it. Stark Reality. With your host, me, Jim, Small Change. Peace. It's a lot of people won't get no All right, here we are with Belinda Becker. How are you? I'm great, Jim. How are you? <laughs> Long overdue. You know what I'm saying? Um glad we finally got it together. I know, I know. It takes a minute, I'm sorry. Um Well damn, where to start? Where should we start? When did you move to New York? In 1984. 1984. November of 1984. It's kind of the same town, right? Nothing's changed, right? You're (laughs) joking, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Hasn't changed one bit. (laughs) No, it's still the same exciting place that it was when I moved here. Um, Yeah, November of 84. Just. uh, It's quite a ride, huh? Yeah, you know, people keep telling me I need to write my memoirs, and I really do, just because I've just seen so many changes over the 30-odd years I've been here. You know, socially, musically, just every, every, in every sense of the word, you know? Yeah, I mean, I moved here in 93, so, I mean, I feel like I caught some of that, but definitely, but definitely it was already changing a lot. Maybe try to paint a picture for people, like, what was New York in the mid-80s? Well... I have to say that it was amazing. I, that's, and I'm only saying this in hindsight because kind of when you're going through, in, through it, you're just living it. You don't really understand what you're doing. You're just living this crazy life, you know? But, um, you know, I moved here in November of 84 and a friend of mine took me to this club area and um how, how, how was it just opening back then basically or? yeah i think it had just opened i'm not quite sure what the opening date was but area opened maybe i wouldn't say 83 82 83 and i got there like at the height of it and so this is my first experience in new york going to this amazing club because you know they changed the scenery like yeah every they changed six it months. every every yeah. 
Well, I heard even every six weeks, or I guess every six months. Maybe I missed. Well, maybe it was six <laughs> weeks. I, you know, <laughs> they changed it a lot. Though, yeah, basically, yeah. It was maybe like it was a club weeks. that they just constantly changed the interior. Yeah, and they had different themes and um, and a kind of a progressive music. You know, like yes. I know, like Justin Strauss used to DJ there. Yeah, Justin, Timmy Regisford, Johnny yeah. Dinell. Yeah, just all of the. Um, and they're all still DJing today, so I think that's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah, so that was my introduction to New York, was this amazing club. And at that time, the club scene was very inclusive. Like, now I find the club scene very sort of separated. Fragmented. Fragmented, and yes. And, you know, I was literally partying in a room with Andy Warhol, Jean-Michel Basquiat, Keith Haring, Stuart Matthewman from Sade, Sade, uh, the Riders, Fab Five Freddy, Jim Jarmusch. I mean, it was just this amazing, eclectic mix of these crazy club kids, you know, um, artists, writers, singers, dancers, and it was just an amazing, it was just an amazing mix of people, and you you don't understand what it is until you miss it. You know? Yeah, that's uh, that's so true. Yeah, that's very true. You know, and I just thought, you know, that was my first introduction. So I just thought that's how that's how life was. You know, you just <laughs> this is how you just show up at area and there's ginger and, yeah, and there it is. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is cool. You know, so, um, you know, and what's great is um, you kind of got to see and talk to these people. So you, you know, there were all of these like amazing ideas, amazing, you know, conversations. You know, I remember, um, you know, going to Jean-Michel's house, you know, he used to have all of these parties and he just never stopped painting. I mean, he'd be at the party and he'd still be painting. I mean, people would be, you know, taking drugs, drinking, hanging out, Doing whatever. all those things. Yeah, and you know, because that's why at 27, he's so prolific because literally this man never stopped painting, you know? And it was just amazing to like watch him, just his whole approach to art. And uh, yeah, it was just a really fascinating time. And I just, you know, yeah. And th those times are definitely gone, you know? Yeah, and um, you kind of fell into DJing. I read it a few spots, and I had actually a similar experience when I was first DJing, where I was uh, at a place and uh, somebody got sick around the corner at Sapphire, and I had not, you know, I'd done more lounge DJing, and I sort of, you know, it was like Saturday night at 1 a.m. and I happened to be hanging out, and then I ended up playing these other person's records in the middle of a hip-hop night you know it was like kind of an early sort of experience like okay i knew some of the guys' records but but that was like a similar thing where uh, someone sort of came up and was like oh we need a dj and you were working there yeah i was uh yeah because i eventually ended up getting a job at areas like a bus girl or you know yeah i, I worked my way up to bartender but um you know, just being from Jamaica, you know, we've always listened to music. My dad was like a total music head, so we had tons of albums. He was always playing music. So I grew up around that. And I collected records. I still do. Um, and I had a whole bunch with me when I moved to New York. And yeah, one of the DJs, because Area had the main floor, which I was not on. That was, you know, Justin, Timmy, Johnny. And there was a lounge, and the manager at that time, 
Howard Schaefer was like, we need a, we need a DJ back here, you know? And I'm like, I'll do it, I'll do it, you know? You know, it's almost better when you go into something and you don't know what it entails because then you're not so scared. I mean, yeah, I you know don't psych yourself thing. out. Exactly. exactly. It's just like, I'm just going to play some records. And of course, I realized it was a little bit more technical than that. Um, but thanks to Johnny Dinell, who gave me some quick lessons, and to my boyfriend at the time, Serge Becker, who was also a DJ, and I use some of his records too. Um, between the two of them, I sort of got the gist of, you know, how to. Viber room and yeah. whatever. Um, I know, you know, I knew how to viber room. I just didn't know technically. I didn't right, know how to, right. you know, switch from record to record or blend or any of these things or beat match. So j between Johnny and Serge, that was how I learned to DJ technically. Right. But I've always, you know, I, I just remember Serge telling me, like, you know, you always, you, you have a great ear for music, you know. So I knew, I, I already knew what vibe I wanted to create. I just didn't know how to do it technically. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're growing up with that stuff, you know, in terms of a certain style, you know, either Jamaica or wherever you're, you know, then you kind of like, okay, these records yeah. speaking to me kind of thing. Exactly. And you're, and you're actually, you're a dancer as well. Yes. So to me, that's like something that I think is always like uh, an interesting thing with DJs who are dancers, because I think you really do have an understanding of kind of, you know, at least the records that move you so that can steer your sets in a exactly. way. Exactly. You and, know. you know, I'm sort of one of the older women DJs on the scene now. And I feel like that's what keeps me relevant is I'm still dancing. I still understand what type of music speaks to people, makes them want to dance. And I think that's sort of what's kept me in this career for th over 30 years. Yeah, I mean, I was going to talk about, we can definitely talk, I want to get back to the dancing part, but we should definitely, you know, I don't think people kind of understand that there was very, very few women DJs in the 80s when you were probably DJing. Very few, very you know. few. I think, basically, I knew Anita Sarko. Anita Sarko, exactly. And Spinderella from Salt and Pepper. Right. And, um, yeah. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not even trying to laugh at it. It's just, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's good that there is, you know, more of a balance. So obviously it's still like most sort of like technical musical things tends to side towards more of a, a male dominated. Yes. But I think, you know, it's hard. I don't think people really understand. It's like there really isn't like almost a starting point. Like, you know, maybe in a certain way, maybe that kept people from DJing. It's like, well, there is no women DJ. Yeah. So it takes people like yourself to be like, Oh, I can do that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as I said, I came into it completely unaware that it was like a completely male-dominated testosterone field. Right. I just, you know, and then as I started to sort of get better known, you know, out in clubs, then I came up against all of the misogyny, you know? Right. And I was like, oh, oh, so this is really how it looks out in the world, you know? Well, and, you know, uh, I mean, obviously, like, any scene in New York is very competitive, but I also think there is a level where, you know, the people that have the gigs, maybe they want to be competitive or diss other people to keep their jobs, but then if there's a whole other side of people, i.e. women, coming into, well, then they have... You know, they want to keep those people out as well. Yeah. 
And then they can do that by saying, well, you can't really do this, that, or the other thing. You know, maybe even just like trying to dis more on like technical skills or whatever. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I even And I'm sure there's a lot of pressure if there's not even a lot of female DJs. And then you're going up and someone's like sitting there and be like, all right, let's see what she's got. You yeah, know, kinda, and that's basically how they were, you know. They were, you know, or get these backhanded compliments like, oh, you know, you're pretty good for a woman, you <laughs> the know. Classic I'm like, line. what the hell does that mean, <laughs> you know? And uh, and I'll never Terrible. forget, you know, I was DJing this one night, and I think I was nervous because it was kind of like this hip hop heavy crowd, and there were all these like, you know, like hardcore hip hop DJs. And, you know, as happens in certain gigs, I did a, you know, I didn't transition smoothly. I'm not, you know what I mean? I'm human. Not every transition, not hey, every mix is going to be smooth. I'm you know? not Q-Bird or J-Rock either. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know it's like, it's I'm fine. Saying? It's so, fine. you know, so I made like a not a very good transition. And one of the frigging DJs got on the mic and like s announced it and started laughing at me, you know? Right. And I'm like, wow, that's, you know, and... Years later, he came up and he apologized. And I'm not going to name any names. Right. But he actually came up and he said, you know what? That was not a cool thing that I did. And I'm like, no, it wasn't. Yeah. And the you thing know? is, too, it, it doesn't. That's the kind of attitude that does not encourage more women DJs to come forward. You know, no. you know, which is maybe why there was sort of a gap and, you know, for so many years with that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what has made it more accessible now is the transition to you know computers serato it's just you know I'm, i was lugging around like four or five crates of records so there's also a physical aspect you know and again not to say that women can carry crates of records but again it because like there was an aspect of djing back in the day where it was physical like yeah it, you know if i was doing a saturday night you know, gig that was going through a lot of records. Yeah, you'd bring three or four crates yeah. of records and a box of 45s. And, uh, you know, you know, and I was, I mean, I had great arms back then, but <laughs> I was, uh, damn. <laughs> because Hilarious. I was pretty much lifting them by myself in and out of the clubs. You know, right. sometimes people would help me and sometimes they wouldn't, you know, and I didn't depend on it. I'm just like, this is my job. These are my tools and I got to get them to the club somehow, you know. So, um, but yeah, I feel like, you know, because technology has advanced so much, it's made it easier for women to get in on the, um, the DJing scene. Right, right. Because then it's, you know, you can just have a computer or even a thumb drive. And exactly. Whatever. USB, Serato, So it becomes controller. more about the knowledge. You're downloading music, you know. Yeah. Where, I mean, again, sometimes those records, it's, it's not, you know, you would search for certain records. Like, if you wanted to play something, again, not to be like, yo, it was uphill both ways when we were kids. But, I mean, I'm just saying, like, if you wanted to play something, you had to have it on vinyl. And there was right. plenty of things that were out of print that you yeah. probably wanted to play, which means you had to seek those records out. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But I think there was also more of a DJ culture. I feel like that's what's lost. Right. Because... All the DJs would meet at Rock and Soul, you know. Right, right, so right. So you would hear what people were playing. You'd had you, you know, you would have discussions about the music they they were listening to, the artists that were coming out. You know, you had A and R people coming and dropping off records for you, whether it was Dante Ross or Lior Cohen or Patrick Moxie. All these guys came to clubs with all the newest hits, you know. Right. So right. there was actually a really vibrant DJ culture around vinyl and I mean I'm sure it exists in pockets because there's still and I know that vinyl 
sold more than CDs this year. I read that. Um, but it, I mean, that was just how it was, you know, right, that's right. just, and you know, there were, there was rock and soul vinyl mania, you know, they were all the record stores that, you know, you would go and see, you know, your fellow DJs and have, and then have music, conversations yeah, and have a, a music conversation. Yeah. Right. Right. So there yeah. was kind of, yeah. And I think that's sort of something that I think is nice about the record store and that it's still there because it's. That's a little bit different. It's it, the online thing, you know. You could be at home, just in the middle of the exactly. night, searching for stuff or whatever. But Which is there what is, I do. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, there is nice of that kind of social interaction yes. of bumping into people, and then you're like, oh, have you yeah. heard this, and and so you kind of would pick up on yeah. records or things just from talking to other people. And also, I feel like. Because people actually, you know, went searching for these gems, you know. There were certain DJs that I followed religiously because I knew I was always going to hear something new from them. And one of them was Jules Gayton. I loved Jules, Jules you know. Old school yes. New York DJ yes. for like 80s, 90s. Yes. I think I met, I met him when I, when, I was, when I was here in the mid-90s yes. a bit. And he just had an incredible you know knowledge of music and an incredible vinyl collection and i would just always be i have to go to jules a, a, a lot of parties i did i hired jules to play because i loved that he just had all of these amazing songs and, and albums and um today i find that you know there are a few djs that still have that quality like i go and i'm like oh i haven't heard this or oh this is you know an amazing remix or whatever and then they're just djs that play the hits you know well sometimes and i feel like you have like a crowd that's sort of dumbed down oh yeah and then you have generations sort of away from even some of those new definitely. classics underground classics which means then What's kind of funny is you have to even dumb it down a little more. Oh, yeah, I, I, I have to do that. I mean, that is not, uh, you know, I understand that. But I do know there's still DJs that it doesn't matter what venue they're playing in, they're going to play the hits because they know that's what moves the crowd. You right, know? They're right. not taking those risks. I mean, I will take those risks. It becomes a little risks. linear. Yeah. You know, and I will still take those risks if I'm working in an op open format venue where they're sort of allowing me to do what I do. Because, I mean, let's face it, after 30 years, you know... Um, you got a few joints. <laughs> and you know what? After 30 years, I've heard September about 150 million times. Yeah, you know? no, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, certain things like kind of get run into the ground, oh, you know, yes. and it's it's fine. And, and, it, and what's kind of like, you know, I mean, I do events and so sometimes... You know, I've, I'm like, well, you know what? These songs, I used to hate them for years. And I'm like, you know what? They're actually good songs. They're, they're just, amazing they're just, songs. They're just played out to shit, exactly. basically. And it's know? not that I won't play September, but I just, you know, it is not a go-to song for me. You know, it's, right. it's, yeah, if I'm at a wedding, maybe because I know that's an intergenerational song and that's right. going to get everybody right. moving or whatever. You know, so there are certain events. But if I'm doing my set and I get to play what I want, September is not going to be in my playlist. Right, because you just, you know, if, if anything, and that's what kind of drives us to DJ is is start going through something. And I think that's maybe what you're alluding to is that kind of old school concept that, you know, especially when I would go out on weekends, it wasn't about the hits. It was about, Never. okay, because 
actually you're at a club, so you should be getting turned on to new things, remixes exactly. or whatever. It shouldn't be like, oh, I want to hear everything that's being played on, on Hot 97 exactly. or some commercial. But, not, but then it kind of becomes that yeah. now. It's like, I mean, okay, exactly we need is. to hear all the things that we hear on the radio. Exactly. When I think, especially when I was still going out, you know, first going out in the 90s in New York, you know, you'd see someone like Johnny Sender or somebody on a weekend, but he would always crush it. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like, yeah, maybe yeah. you hear... A few like party joints, but yep, it Johnny was a Sender. You know, yes, I'm just saying, you know, no, because yes, you actually, because right. he did Sundays at Nell's, and you yep. played at Nell's for yep. many years as well, right? Yes, and uh, yeah, I've worked with Johnny 14th. a few times. Yeah, yeah, no, you've played at a lot of classic places around New York. Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> not to go like reminisce <laughs> out of memory because you're still very much DJing. I, I'm not trying to make light, but I'm just saying it's. And sometimes, again, when people have come, you know, coming to New York, it's like that may not kind of resonate like area. Well, now you read about area that was a little bit before my time, but right. Nell's, you know, yeah. or some of these places, it's kind of hard to necessarily convey that these places had a vibe, you know, yeah. or even like APT or yes. whatever. It's where you know. Rich Medina got his start. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and I, I sort of miss those clubs, you know, because as I said, I feel like everything is very fragmented now and um it's there it was something unifying about those clubs because i felt like they kind of tapped into whatever whatever this means real new york but there's kind of like that undercurrent of new york that's not where it becomes now it's just like okay we're just reaching for whoever's going to give us money which then becomes kind of a lowest common like they kind of took a stand on the music and we're going to have like it be a real music place we're still trying to make money blah 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 but right but they did kind of take a stand on having good DJs and having Definitely. like an ethos like all through the week, you know. So, like I said, yeah, those those places had kind of an ethos, which then, of course, include people like yourself and other people that kind of keep that vibe. Yeah. You know? I mean, one of the parties that I really enjoy right now that I think has kept that energy is Soul in the Horn on Friday. Yeah, I was just going to say. Soul in the Horn, which is, yeah, exactly. Yes. Natasha Diggs and Dee Prosper, Prosper yeah. are doing an amazing job, you know, and um, I'm so happy that that is still there, you know, because it really is a place to come and hear music and dance, right. you know, and I think a lot of places you're there to profile, take a couple of Instagram pictures, um, you know, ask for the latest hits and uh, keep it moving, you know? Right. And uh, so I definitely appreciate their effort to kind of keep that authentic New York dance culture alive. Yeah, authentic New York dance culture. Yeah. That is a good way of putting yeah, it. Yeah, that's what it is, you know? And you, you know, let's talk about just the sort of dancing because you, you do, um, you're into also a lot of like uh, Haitian music yes. and not just, you know... Is so was that sort of ins how did you get into some of that was that through going to dance parties and and dancing that kind of stuff or um it was a mixture um you know i was taking dance class even when i you know in high school um, college but they were just very you know it's like modern very traditional types of dance and then when i got to new york you know i just realized there was just this whole subculture of african diasporic dance there was afro-cuban afro-brazilian afro-haitian and i was like okay you know <laughs> <laughs> no more plies let's do this yeah you yeah know? exactly <laughs> um i mean especially given your music background that's gonna yeah, speak to you more probably uh, totally you know and you know, so that's kind of, um, that's how I, f you know, I came into, uh, to 
dance. I just really fell into all of those, you know, different types of Afro-Caribbean dance. And they just spoke to me. I mean, I just felt very connected to them. And, um, and also because I feel like these dances, there's always a deeper meaning to them. So they speak to me spiritually also. You know, like Afro-Haitian dance, it's, it's very symbolic. You know, every gesture means something. Afro-Cuban, every gesture means something. You know, there's the, this, you know, a gesture where you almost make this the sign of cutting cane. Okay. You know? Oh, wow. See, I didn't even, yeah. I, I never even picked up on that. Yeah. That's why I think I kind of understand yeah. what you're talking about movement wise, but wow, that's wild. Yeah. That's so really every wild. gesture no means something, you know? So, you know, like Yon Valu is, you know, water, you know? So it's like this. It's ev- every, everything. It just made sense to me. It made right. sense to me. Right. And because um, it almost speaks to the origins of those people and, you know, exactly what people went through. Exactly. I mean, it tells it's our om- story. It tells it's our kind of like story. almost like a healing process in a Completely. way. Wow. That's wild. Completely. And I never even you learn something every day. That's wild. Yeah. So, yeah. So then that's deep. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And then, I mean, the music is amazing, too. Yeah. On top of that. And what I'm really loving now is there there are all of these amazing, like, cross-pollination, like, little projects going on, like, you know, like, from Havana to Kingston or Cuban Haitian. So it's these mixes of all of these different types of music, you know, because, you know, we, we, it's, you know, thanks to globalization, everything is sort of blending together right and they're just some beautiful collaborations between these islands and and different cultures you know and And even with a lot of modern dance music too yeah you know you'll have cumbia but then you'll have digital cumbia that almost sounds like dubstep or you know you get like a lot of different hybrids yes even within dance music yes and there there have been you know a couple which i have here you know a couple of classical um musicians who've gone to Africa and worked with like the pygmies and with the, you know pygmy music and made these beautiful albums you know right right so um yeah i'm very interested in in world music i just it it speaks to me on a much deeper level i think because you know as i said it it talks to me of my history of my people's history and uh w- you know, as a person of color, you're not really taught that here in the States. Yeah, well, I mean, th- there, that's the thing is it's almost like, you know, you could look at it like, okay, there's, you know, these music scenes, but it's not really... I mean, I have kind of was thinking about this more years ago, but just the concept of high art versus low art and that whole thing like, oh, okay, so there's like classical and your museums and then you have like some bashment dance hall thing but you know who's to say when you especially when you get into collecting reggae and you see or any of these subgenres, what a huge world and how much culture there is and then it's like you know for me being white it's like this is just you know it and it's just another aspect of that kind of the wonderful world we live in right you know that it's like okay we're not going to view this as culture and actually like i'd rather be collecting and buying this shit personally you know right you know it's yeah, just yeah. like you start to understand that it's like yeah it is much deeper than what is alluded to in the society yes and i think that's also because you know of that of the you know that famous saying that history is told by the victors 
you know so basically all of our islands and you know africa were colonized by you know europeans and based so they tell our history so they decide what is high art you know and it's just like no because when you look at our music and uh, you know like cuban music is so sophisticated no very sophisticated exactly do you know what i'm saying so i'm just like no 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 I don't know why you think it's not high. You know, I don't even know where that definition comes from. I'm just well, like, it's, 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 kind of, it's an essentially a racist concept. Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. You know, because you know. who's decided that your culture is better because you don't understand it, so therefore you want to belittle it. Exactly. Like you, you don't understand Jamaican slang, so whatever. When it's more like, yeah, you don't understand any of the shit, do you? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't understand half the shit either, but I still play the records. I'm just saying, yeah, like, yeah. but I mean, I'm not, you know, people dismiss this stuff. And it's, exactly. it's kind of like... It is. It's cheating. It's almost cheating, you know, society as a whole because it's like, you know, look at if you actually go and you look at all this stuff, like I said, you could get very inspired. Yeah, it is. It's nice to, to go to the original sources. And, yeah. You know, understand where all this stuff comes from. And then all the different kinds of dance, you know, as yeah. you said, it's a connection to the music. Yeah. You know? And, uh, you know, I didn't know the blues came from Mali, but they do. Yeah. You know, so like just in my musical journey and sort of like tracing the blues back to its origins, I'm just like, wow, you know, that's where it came from, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm very, very interested in, in all of these sort of, yeah, the, the, the history of music and how it gets to wherever it gets to. Because I just think that there's so many beautiful stories along the way, you know? Do you still see like a, a good kind of healthy sort of world music scene in New York? <laughs> I mean, like, let's let's go back from New York to the 80s till now. I mean, obviously, it's a changed spot. But I mean, do you see those scenes kind of getting fragmented or you think yeah. it's still kind of healthy? Like, um, in terms of Well, uh, I think, you know, basically, you know, Afrobeat has kind of taken over as the go-to world music. And I'm using that term Afrobeat very lightly because it is, Afrobeat is really what Fela was doing. That's Afrobeat, you know, that, you know, that type of, you know, the trombones, the, the, you know, the horn section, just the whole way, that was Afrobeat. You know, what came, what's coming out of Nigeria now is like, pop you know it's almost like it's nigerian pop but because whatever we're too lazy to actually differentiate now everything falls under the moniker of afrobeat it's not afrobeat right right but um because that's also something i'm sure as a dancer that that's what separates all these different subgenres of music exactly there's ghana high life (laughs) there's south african house there's nigerian afrobeat there's nigerian pop you know and it's just all just you know, squished together yeah, under the, the Afrobeat. You well, know, that's name. the thing that I think is also kind of like the whole concept, even world music. It's like you have U.S. slash Western music and then world music. It's kind of obnoxious, you know, because you really do have a lot of different cultures. But then it's like, oh, it's the other stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, so there is sometimes I think kind of a laziness with some of that. Oh, stuff. totally. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the Af- they, what they call the Afrobeat scene is very much alive. You know, there are tons of parties. Um, and you know, when you sort of, if, you know, I live here in Bed-Stuy. I have projects to the front of me and projects to the back of me. And basically, 
in the summer at three or four in the morning, they're blaring their music. And for me, I know other people would get upset, but that's where I hear some of the newest songs. Right, I'm right, right. Leaning out my window, shazamming <laughs> shit at four o'clock in the morning. Like, what the? What is this? You know? And, um, you know, so when you sort of, you know, when you start hearing, you know, Afrobeat or Burna Boy or Wiz Kid or any of these guys, right, right. There, you know, it's like, okay, you know, they know, they, they're, they're the heartbeat of the music culture. And this is what they say is popular right now, you know? Yeah, and that speaks to something of like even appreciating, you know, coming into a neighborhood and that's what it's about as opposed to the problem with gentrification where you might get a apartment on one side of Prospect, you know, park, but then you're dialing 311 on the African drummers that have been there since the exactly. late 60s. It's like, go fuck yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, you know, that's it's like basically... People coming into this neighborhood and it's not even like, okay, people aren't allowed to live in certain neighborhoods, but it's like, just respect the, the heritage yeah. of like where, you know... No, Where exactly. It comes with people, that's just what it is, you know. I yeah. don't know. No, you're absolutely right. It's just like you know, it's not like they haven't been, you know, partying out in the summer until four or five. You know, this is how this is how they live. You know, it's the gentrifiers who come in and it's like, oh, I can't take it. You know, it's late. And and the irony that I mean is is that a lot of these, you know. Folks like Caribbean, they were pushed into these neighborhoods in the first place. Like and now probably being pushed in, out. Yeah, like in the '60s, they probably weren't living on Fifth Avenue. That's yeah. why they lived out here. Yeah. You know, but now it's like, oh, it just—that's the thing. It kind of gets ruthless in a bad way. Yeah, and it's it's gotten to the point that it's now hyper gentrification because right. it's not organic. It's just like. Oh, there's a neighborhood, you know, corporations come in, they get these crazy tax breaks, they're paid to go in here and like, you know, buy up these houses and, you know, renovate them and jack up the prices and get rid of the, it's, you know, yeah. locals. It's like, it's, it's just, it's evil. It's, it's, evil. it's, it's soulless. You yeah. Know? Because completely. that was the thing, I think they were fighting the, uh, the Amazon thing that was going to happen in Long Island City, yeah. but kind of for that reason, because again, where are the, all those workers going to live? And then it becomes... Exactly. This way of pushing people out. Yeah. And, I, I you know, am I'm totally I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> that Amazon didn't get there. No, that's what I'm saying. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I know we're, again, part of the whole thing with this podcast is kind of talking about some of the politics and stuff. So, I mean, obviously, there's so many things that we could uh, talk about. I mean, immigration and all this stuff, especially given... Again, it's kind of a, a diss on all this culture and music to, to think like, okay, all these people, <laughs> you know, they shouldn't be living here when it's like, you know, I don't know. So many people from other places helped make America what it is. You exactly. Know? You know, I mean, that's exactly why it disturbs me so much because, you know, everywhere you look, there is influence and contribution from immigrants. Right. You know, and uh, and this sort of just blanket racist policy, like they're poor, they're not contributing, they're black or brown or whatever, you know, get them out of our country. I'm just like, we built this country. It's just a lot of obnoxiousness. I mean, beyond all the horrible things with racism, it's just fucking obnoxious. 
It really is. It's like obnoxious on the level of genocide, but it really is. It's just, who are these people to say like who belongs in this? Why? Who made you? You know. It's the people the, with the power and exactly. money. Exactly, and that's why they go after that. Yeah, and you know, yes, I rant and I rave and I curse the name of Donald Trump every single day. But it's not him. He's one man. Well, he's the pimp. I call. I, I say. I mean, he's like the pimple on the face of the empire. You know, it's like it's very easy to spot. Exactly. He's like the pimple on the end of the bozo nose. Yeah. But at the same time, he's reminiscent of a lot of people that are slicker than him or come before him. Yeah. You know that it, you know push these kind of policies. Of course. You know. I mean, I find Mitch McConnell a hundred times more dangerous than Donald Trump. Yeah, or even someone after Donald Trump that could be slicker. Yeah. You know. Exactly. That's the real danger. And you know, you know, all we see is the bluster because we are constantly, you know, subjected to his tweets and then the twenty-four hour news cycle that just obsesses about everything he writes, everything he says. But all the slick people are behind the scenes getting their policies, whether it's, you know, voter suppression, right-wing federal judges on the, you know, in the courts. All of these policies, they're the ones putting them in place. The ALEC laws, you know, like the Koch brothers, Koch where they, they kind of yes. shove all these things through state legislatures. Exactly. You know. And we're not even concerned with that because we're worried about what friggin' Donald Tr Trump tweeted with a hundred misspellings yesterday, you know? No. Yeah. Yeah, like even the federal judges thing that, you know, and again, I, I get very frustrated. I mean, I, I rant a lot online, too, but just, you know, with that, the Democrats just don't stand up like they left all these judge appointments open. It's like, why would you do that? It's just it's just mind numbing yeah. to, to let some right wing fascist person put in these awful judges that then are on there for life. For life. life. I mean, even, you know. Even people like Brent Kavanaugh, you know, it's just like, it's just kind of unfrickin' believable, man. Yeah, and you it's know, it's just like that when people just you're just watching things happen, and then the people that are supposed to fight back against it don't yeah. fight back, and it's just like fucking a man. I mean, I was so Stand hopefully hopeful up. when you know the Democrats took the House back, because I was like, okay, now something's gonna happen, and I'm just like. This whole impeachment, no impeachment inquiry, it's an investigation, it's just a, I'm just like, I don't stand for something, for crying out loud, stand yeah. up for something. You I know, mean, yeah. the, the waffling and the... Ugh. Well, that's my problem. It's just like, you know, you have the fascists who are obviously evil, but then you have like these kind of centrist neoliberals and they help bring in fascism yeah. because they just... They're the most milk toast motherfuckers ever. They exactly. just do not stand for anything. Exactly. You know, their stance is, have you seen the other guy? And it, like that doesn't necessarily win elections if you yourself don't take any policies. Yeah. You know, especially yeah, yeah. when the status quo also doesn't work for a lot of people. Yeah. You know, so. But, you know, it's. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. how do you change this? You know, yeah. because it's so. It's just so deeply a part of the system that we are, you know, that the governmental system, just ev everything in this country is run by these handful of people. Everything. Right, right. You know, and they're not about to relinquish power. No, no. In fact, I think e even if they're uh, supposedly supposed to, I'm sure they'll find some ways. I mean, that's some of the whole, whole like, 
gerrymandering of districts exactly or, or even what Greg yes. Palace was talking about like yeah that they just have thrown voters off the voter rolls yeah usually and again immigrants and people of color you of know, course and because they, they know that they're probably not going to vote for their fascist ass which of course yeah, exactly of course. you know and because you guys are a bunch of racist assholes why should we vote for you <laughs> you know <laughs> i mean yeah that to put it bluntly yes <laughs> You know, even like the governor in in Florida, it's now, you know, like before, because now they've given um, felons who've gotten out of jail the chance to vote, oh but right, they have that. to pay. The it's poll a poll tax. tax. Poll tax. It's a poll tax. Yeah, let's go back to that yeah. Jim Crow shit. You know? It's a straight up poll tax. It's, it you know, really this is. This is what I'm saying. Awful. This is 2019. No, and look at these frigging policies. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I mean... I mean, I would think, you know, like I said, I'm in, you know, my mid 40s. So it wasn't like I was around in the 50s or 40s. But it's just like it's unbelievable that we cannot move forward from things like that, like a poll tax. Like, what the fuck, man? Yeah. It's really it's like these people that are just trying to hold on to that kind of Dennis the Menace, like 40s, 50s, like, you know, yeah. Just trying to hold on to that, and it's like it's 2019. It's the internet. It's you know, there's uh, gay yeah. people. There's I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like it's it's like you can't hold on to this reality. It's just bullshit, you know. But change is coming, whether they like it or not. Right. Change is coming because it, this is not a sustainable path. It just isn't. Right. You know. Right. Um, California. You know, the government doesn't want them to reduce their carbon emissions. Why? Yeah. Does that make any sense at all? Well, it's just it's just straight money. It's sort exactly. of like it's just ruthless like money, you know, and they're I mean the sad thing is what's twisted about like a lot of the climate stuff is that, you know, these these people are such narcissistic dipships is that they don't even care about their own grandchildren. I know. They're like, Hey, we're gonna be dead in ten years. Exactly. If if things are really bad, we'll find some island that's yeah. Not you know, they it. think they're not gonna be around, and their money will save their families. Right. You know. Right. Exactly. So that's that's their you know whole take on everything. They're gonna build a bunker yeah. in New Zealand you know, and just hide out. They're gonna yeah, <laughs> or they're jumping on that uh, spaceship with Richard Branson to Mars or whatever. Yeah, you know, you know it's like really <laughs> twisted, and it really is like again it talk is. about nothing changes. You know, like Whitey on the Moon, Gil Scott Heron, yeah, from like the early seventies. But it's like these motherfuckers would rather build a space station than like actually clean give, up than give the people you know like jeff yeah. bezos is like oh you know cutting like health care for part-time workers instead and you know to invest in what like trips to the moon right. for other billionaires and i mean it's just how it's much like taxes did amazon pay this year i mean it's Zero. just it's proof that billionaires are not only stupid they're just like you know they're just like everyone else except with a billion dollars you know or worse you know no, so it's I like it's like the arrogance of that you know but Again. you know I, I don't know if you've ever read that you know, there have been several studies done about like ceos and heads of countries that they're all psychopaths right right you know and if you see where we are in the world, you even without reading the survey, you'd kind of have to agree, you know? Yeah, I mean, Donald Trump acts like a racist cokehead, basically. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, or on a lot of Diet Coke, so much Diet Coke. But I'm just saying, like, you know, he's just, he's twisted. I mean, these people are legitimately twisted. But that's what I'm saying, you know, his yeah. lack of empathy, his, like, delusions of grandeur, you know. But his it's a lot of billionaires, too. 
you know. But they're all like that because in order for them to get where they are, exactly. they have to have these traits. You have to be a, like, I don't give a fuck, motherfucker, in order to get to where they are. Yeah, otherwise they'd probably be taking some of the money they made and helping exactly. people, which then they wouldn't have a billion dollars, would exactly. they? Exactly. You know, that's exactly. the thing. But the thing that's kind of twisted in this capitalist society and media it's like oh they're successful they have a billion dollars it's like no they're a psychopath yeah and you know it's kind of like, like it's st- like like you know like i go on netflix and there's like inside bill gates brain it's like i don't want to fucking <laughs> no let's not yeah let's 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 <laughs> let's sell gmos and like kentucky fried chicken to africa like i already know way too much about bill gates yeah. brain yeah. You know, we don't need to know any more about that dude. You know, but you know, <laughs> no, uh, not at all. And also for me, you know, which is something that I've wrestled with and come to terms with is like I define what success is to me. Exactly. Because That's I am good. not going to jump on this American dream bandwagon because that bang- bandwagon is going straight to hell. With, with the way I see things, you know, which is this thing for material, money, status, blah, 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 blah. You know, that is, that, that's not success to me. That's not happiness, you know? And even, you know, I always say, I look at people like Anthony Bourdain, like, isn't he the height of success? Although I really like Anthony. No, I really no, did like it, was, it was a shame. But it's you know what I'm saying? So I'm just like, these ideas that we buy into, they don't make us happy. They don't make us successful. I mean, and if anything, like maybe you can also learn happiness helping other people, especially when there's so well, many people suffering on the planet. But I think you that's, know. you know, that's one thing I learned because, yeah, you know, we live in a super narcissistic time thanks yeah. to social media. And um, the one thing I learned when I had my daughter was it felt so good to focus on someone else and give to someone else. That's what made me happy. And then I said, but then it doesn't have to stop at her. I can keep helping. I can help this one. I can you know, do this here. I can donate my time. I can donate money to this cause. I can DJ for this benefit, you know? And the more I did that was the better I felt about myself. Well, I think it's like it's a purpose where it's like, yeah, it's even beyond even my own needs and, and all that stuff. Yeah, and I mean, you were you were DJing and raising a daughter. I mean, that's that's pretty tricky. I, re- I saw that you you were talking in some interview where sometimes you had like a network of people like, okay, I have a gig because it's not a nine to five job. Yeah. Like you have to leave probably like eight or nine p.m. Yeah. to go DJ all night. So yeah, you yeah, know, that must have been pretty uh, tricky. Yeah, but as I said, I did have a community of um, like a little network of friends and we all did it for each other. It wasn't just like they were taking care of my daughter, but when they needed me to take care of their kids and if I wasn't working, I'd do it, you know. And so the value of community is also extremely important to me. And I think we lose it here. Like nobody has any idea of what community is. It's all for self, me, I, what can I do for me? And I just, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today without my community. And I can say that honestly, without their help and support. Yeah, I mean, even talking about what we were talking about earlier with like meeting DJs at record stores, but I also saw like in another interview you were talking about, you know, coming from Jamaica and and coming to New York where people don't say hi and it's kind of like, and I think that almost becomes more of a thing 
with gentrification where it's almost yes. like everyone is just here for themselves yes. and like I moved to New York I have my job I don't really need to meet anyone oh yes. these people are making noise I'm going to call the cops on yes. them it's like exactly there's kind of a lack of like trying to uh, have that kind of community yeah and it, it, it's yeah it's unfortunate I went to um, East Hamptons on Saturday East Hampton on Saturday to sit on a, to, to speak on a panel about just cultural identity and art criticism. And, you know, the jitney dropped me off and I had to walk. It was, I was walking to the Guild Hall. And as I was walking there, it just felt so unreal, you know, because it was so perfect. It's like the Ferrari dealership or something. Just, <laughs> you know, but there was no, it was almost like, like the Stepford Wives, you know, yeah, just, yeah. it's so, so, soulless I don't know how to describe it but it was just there was just a lack of of life right you know and I'm I'm sort of you know and it just made me think like and this is how they want these communities to be oh I'm sure exactly you know this is exactly what they want for Bed-Stuy for East Flatbush Flatbush Crown Heights this is what they want and it's like no because that's not how we're living here. If you want to live like that, then yeah, do it in East Hampton. It's great for you out there. Right, you know? right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just a. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's an it's an interesting world to navigate right now because I always felt like. You know, once I get older, everything's going to be easier. Life's going to just... You figured out everything. Yeah, and it's just the absolute opposite. You know, as I get older, I'm just like, what the fuck? You yeah, know? because it's not moving forward in no. a logical way. Like, no. as you, I think, you know, yeah, as I get older, I feel like, oh, this is, makes sense. And you get kind of turned on and opened up. But then you actually see the world trying to, again, go back to some yeah. 1950s bullshit. And it's like... No, it's like if anything, the more that you're aware and the more you see things being open, then it's like it, it does drive me more to push yeah. for that world because it's like we should be here. It's like exactly. 2019, why is there poll tax? Why are there six-year-olds getting arrested at school and put in handcuffs? Like, yeah. Yeah, how, well, how, do, how do grown adults think that this is an okay thing to do? Like, who, what in the fuck is wrong with you? Jesus, you know? I mean, I was thinking that too, you know, I'm, I just was watching, um, no, I wasn't, uh, someone posted something about a public lynching. It, it took place a long, you know, obviously, m maybe in the 30s or 40s. And I was just like, what type of mentality is it that you bring your kids, you bring your food, you have a oh picnic? Oh, yeah, they sold postcards and shit, right? I mean, t to me... That's what I don't understand, that type of mentality. And obviously, it still exists today. Yeah, it's dark. It's very dark. You know, and I'm just like, how is that appropriate in any way that you look at this as a fabulous Sunday outing, you know? It's because it's just when, you know, and this is why it's trying to combat a lot of these things going on, like, you know, the sort of push against immigrants is because it's a dehumanizing. De like they're just exactly. they don't look at We're those people as human beings and it's like not only should you look at them as human beings you should take notes because maybe their culture has a lot to offer you know more than your Montavani records that are <laughs> sitting in a thrift store 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and also, I mean, I mean you know, let's face it, you know, we've given so much to music. We've Dude, given so on. much to dance. I mean, we've given all the, so like, much to fashion. Music is like, come on, it's Afro, whatever, Afro Latin, yeah. like that. Dis- um, diaspora that you're talking about that is saying. all modern music exactly you know? if you trace any genre of music back it always goes back to africa always it's crazy it's crazy that's that's what's kind of twisted about it you know because even like when you see even like dance music you know people forget about that it even a lot of it comes from chicago and detroit you know, because then it's like bigger, either European or yeah, white male DJs. Which exactly. Again, if people are good DJs, it's fine, you know. But it's sometimes it's good to, more than sometimes, it's good to just recognize where the roots of that is. Because exactly. it's easy to get lost if, you know, the DJ mag or mix mag top 100 DJs are all white, mostly male. male yeah. Mostly European or random DJs. And it's like, where does this music come from? Oh, yeah, it came from Detroit, yeah. not Germany. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know? You know? And I feel like that's sort of even, you know, talking about women DJs, I just don't, you know, it, 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 you know, we came from the, you know, it, it comes from Jamaica. Yeah, a <laughs> lot of stuff. No, so much comes from Jamaica. You so know, I mean, that's I mean, where obviously, I'm a huge Jamaican music fan, and yeah, so much. I mean, the concept of dubbing. Yeah. It's, you know, even like scratching off the labels. I mean, you know, they were doing that in Northern Soul parties in England, but I yeah. mean, in Jamaica, they were doing that in the 60s. Yeah. You, you know? know, like the covering up R&B records. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and the whole thing is you would think if that's the roots of it, then have respect for it. And they don't, you know, or, you know, they might have respect for the music, but they don't have respect for our culture and our people. Right. And that's what the problem is. Yeah, that is also twisted. The concept of I like this, it's almost like conversation and do the right thing. It's like I like Prince, but I'm still racist or whatever. Exactly. It doesn't really work like that. Yeah. Yeah, like exactly. If, if you and and again, it's when there's so much stuff that's embedded in popular culture and beyond, you can't just. To me, it's very like it's very hypocritical to me to be any kind of DJ and be racist. It's like all your shit comes from black or African culture in a yeah. way. You know, whether it's a style of music, even DJing itself in a lot of ways. Exactly. You know, yeah. it's like if you're a racist and you're a DJ, you're again, you're a dipshit. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> But anyways, um, I was going to ask you, because I know that you did some acting. Yes. And uh, you were you came to New York because you got a uh, degree in journalism. Yes, I have a degree from so the University of Florida. So you were looking at like writing. Yes. But then obviously you fell into DJing. But does that still kind of like, how does how, how would be like your acting or, or writing experience? How does that, you know, kind of interlace with like, you know, DJing or dancing? Has that kind of influenced you in different ways? Um. Well... You know, they're all about sort of telling, you know, I just said this on Saturday. It's just telling the story of who I am and where I come from and, and my, my, you know, my culture, African culture. So I write for this um, uh, lifestyle magazine called Ubiquist. I'm a c- contributor. And uh, it's usually just, you know, interviewing, you know, People, it's usually people of color, writers, directors, actors, and, you know, sort of 
putting their life and their path out, you know, for the world to see. So I'm very interested in presenting us in, in um, I'm just interested in us telling our stories. Well, well, I mean, I think white people have done a great job so far. I mean, why do you guys need to say anything? You know? Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, I'm just... Uh, no, I that's like, good. what the hell? No, that's you know? good. No, but, I mean, that's the whole point. It's yeah. like, yeah, you know, that's even, you know, the point of what I was trying to do some of this podcast is get other people's perspectives, yeah. put them out there. Because I, I, I feel like, you know, I read so many things and they're just so distorted. It's like, that's not how it is. That's not how we are. That's not what, you know, this represents. You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Which is true. You Most know, of the time it is wrong. You know, so Why not I talk just to the people that have lived it exactly, and are from there? Exactly. You know? So I just want to tell our stories. That's what I do. And I do it, you know, as I said, I do it through dance. I do it through my DJing. Um, you know, acting, yes. You know, I've gotten some, you know, interesting roles that I've been able to kind of tell stories about our, our you know, our culture. But, you know, I've, I've gotten crap roles too. And, um, and writing, yeah, I'm interested in, in writing about, uh, you know, the African-Caribbean experience. Yeah. I think that's really important, you know, because I feel like, again, that's the perspective that, you know, you don't see enough in society. And then if you do, you know, half the time based on media, it's just, again, dumbed down or, you know, you know, and, and, you know, I've had a few people ask me, well, why do you just want to concentrate on that? And I'm just like, because it's about representation. I don't need to write about you because you, you know, you're in the movies, you're on the screen, you're on TV, you're you're everywhere. There's more than enough representation. We're the ones that are underrepresented in every field. So this is what I, this is what I want to tell stories about. I mean, it's a little bit of an obnoxious question. It's like, you're a black person. Why do you want to write about black people? But you know, they, but <laughs> people ask. That, no, I'm not know, saying. But it's, it's just like, true. come on. But, come it's, on. but people get, uh, you know, uh, Toni Morrison got asked, like, when is she gonna, you know, write a novel about a white person? Really? Ugh. You know. It's twisted. And I'm just like, why should she? Yes, exactly. You know? Exactly. So it's, yeah, people do ask that question. It's like the same thing. You know, it's like black lives matter. No, all lives matter. Oh, that's the worst. You know? It's, it's just a variation of that. It's amazing know? that a concept like all lives matter becomes a racist statement, but it, it does actually is because the whole concept is you're trying to counter, again, it's, and it's also co-opting something that comes from. Yep. You know, black. I think a black women started that hashtag. Yes. So yes. there it is. It's like you're co-opting this thing. Like blue lives matter. Is yes. it people like? No, you choose to be a cop. You dipshit. <laughs> no, exactly. Where's the blue people? Yeah. You know. It's no, like, get it's the just fuck out of here with this shit. You know, Ugh. and then that's what we face continually. You know, there are all of these sort of like obstacles because it's like no, but you know, or. But I think a lot of it is, I mean, it really comes down to that, you know, white people do not want to look at themselves. So that would be the kind of question is, you know, asking someone like Toni Morrison, why don't you write about white people? It's like, why don't you look at who Toni Morrison is and why she's writing the story she is? And then maybe you would you wouldn't even ask that question. Yeah. You know, yeah, I don't know. But, you know, I, I, I think that. There's just a level of complacency and comfortability here that doesn't allow them to look at themselves. Or, you know, it's, it's, you know, they're fine. So 
Yeah. Why, that, why can't you be fine? And that and that goes back to the lack of empathy. Yeah. Because you're not going to look at, you know, where someone else is coming from. Exactly. You're just in your perspective, it's fine. I mean, I saw someone was tweeting about, um, it was something about uh, that recent Saturday Night Live guy that got fired or whatever. Shane, whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, I think the second statement, I'm kind of probably butchering it, but it's like something about how when you're coming from a place of privilege, then equality can feel like oppression. And this is how, you know, I think it really just sums up so many different scenarios in the world because it's like that's how oppressors feel like victims because it's like, oh, you're taking away my entitlement and my advantage. It's like, yeah, because it should be equal, you know, but then it's like, oh, you're oppressing me. It's like, no, we're trying to. Yeah. No, exactly. it's like maybe we're sick of all these other people being oppressed so that you can be on your little pedestal in your own little dreamland. Exactly. You know? Exactly. It's a yeah. wonderful world. <laughs> well, it's better with you in it, for sure, without a doubt. Um, and uh, we'll have like a little playlist from you. Yes, I will and put together uh, a little playlist for yeah, you. Yeah, but thank you so much for your time oh, and all that welcome. stuff. Come on, of course, duh. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll catch you around, I'm sure. It's lovely speaking with you, Jim. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. To hear DJ Belinda Becker's exclusive Stark Reality playlist, check out Episode 6 of Stark Reality on Mixcloud or jasoncharles.net podcast network music shows. You've been listening to Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. jasoncharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.